we were the first family out of our extended family to leave the country. And so a lot of people looked down on my dad for doing that as well, for taking us to not like Turkey or Lebanon, somewhere regional, or even like America to Australia, like at the end of the world. Welcome to the Good Morning Podcast, a podcast about extraordinary, ordinary people. I'm Kelly, your host, and I hope you've got your coffee and you're ready to say good morning to this week's guest, Jude Gasali. This week, I sat down with Jude Gasali, who is my friend and a 21-year-old law student in Victoria. She grew up in Aleppo, Syria, which was so interesting to talk about because I knew almost nothing about Syria before this conversation. We also talked about what it's like living and growing up as migrants in Australia and her dreams to build a better Syria in the future. It was an incredibly fun and inspiring conversation and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Aleppo? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I was born in Aleppo and I lived there for the first 13 years of my life. Um, and growing up there was a very different experience from what I think most people know um, from seeing Syria on the news these days. Um, growing up there, I had all my family around me. I, you know, grew up with my family. I grew up with my friends. Uh, I went to school and I had a bunch of extracurricular activities on the weekend. Like I was involved with my local scout group um, and I had a lot of friends and was it was a very social upbringing um, and it was a very, it was a very definitely different upbringing from what I think most people would would know from um, the images that that they hear, that they see on the news and the stories that they hear nowadays. Um, it was peaceful to my, in my 13 year old head, um, everyone liked each other and we all lived in harmony um, and there were no issues and um, I was happy. I was happy to be with family. I was happy to be with friends and, and I was happy going to school and studying and I had like you know, set these goals and I knew what, like I wanted to do medicine at uni um, and I knew like what I want, I knew what uni I wanted to get into and all those things. And it, it never occurred to me that I would have to, that my life would basically completely um, change um, in, you know, a few years. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a big family? I do. Yeah. So both, I was very lucky to have both sides of my family majority of them um, in Aleppo and the ones who weren't in Aleppo were just in neighboring cities and they often came down to Aleppo for Christmas and New Year's and things like that. So we always saw them um, and we were always hanging out with them and it was just, you know, looking back now because I don't have that here anymore, it was really just a really good, like, good upbringing and, and just really good to be surrounded with them all the time and to have them look after you and teach you and yeah, just have fun with you. Yeah, so do you, like, when you were growing up, did you kind of always have family, like, around you? Because I know when I grew up, like, I was basically raised by my grandparents. Yeah. And it was just constant, like, family is being there all yeah. the time. Yeah. And as someone who moved to Australia as well, but mm -hmm. I didn't have any family here, it was really jarring to yeah. just suddenly have only three other people yes. in the household. Yeah. I definitely had the same experience because I 
did I, we moved from a place where you know my cousins lived two minutes down the road you could just walk to the house to somewhere where you know it would take us 20 minutes or something to to go to our family friend's house who are not really our actual family so yeah it was very very different and it still is very difficult to just um be here without family and not really have anyone other than you know like i'm very lucky to have established a network of close friends and family friends but it's just not the same as having actual yeah. real family here and yeah even things like you know celebrating christmas or celebrating easter and things like that because i know what that used to be like when i was home you know everyone would come over or we would go to someone's house and everyone would be there they'd bring all this food and um it was a real like it was a really special time and yeah having that change was not nice and i think um going to sweden this year and seeing my family again i remembered how good it was to be to be with them and to spend time with them and i really really missed that and I yeah wish I could have that here as well yeah yeah I can a hundred percent relate relate to it especially around the Christmas New Year's Mm. and like Chinese New Year for me like the difference in what I experienced as a child and Mm. what I'm experiencing now like it's still good Mm -hmm. I still have family here but it's just absolutely not the same level of excitement and like fun and seeing people that you don't see in a very long time I agree yeah Yeah. and just like having milestones to celebrate with family as well that you kind of end up celebrating within your own small immediate family or with with just a few friends but it's it's definitely not the same experience and um, yeah not as you said not as exciting or as fun Um, so can you describe what Aleppo was like when you were growing up because Mm -hmm. I have literally no idea what it looked like other than what I saw on the news yeah and I think that's the same with a lot of people these days and you can't really blame them I mean I remember when I first moved here I'll just say a small story first before I (laughs) answer the question um I first moved here in 2012 which was technically a year after the war broke out in Syria but it was still a time where many people especially high school students that are in year eight didn't know about it fair enough um so when I obviously stood out like I did not look Australian and when I opened my mouth to speak I had a crazy accent and I yeah people could see that I'm not from Australia and so when they asked where are you from um and I said I'm from Syria uh they said like where's that and I tried to say, like, it's next next to Turkey. And they said, like, where's Turkey? And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm not really sure where we can go from I'm gonna here. give up now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, not a lot of people knew about it. And unfortunately, they only started hearing about it, I would say, in, like, 2013 or 2014. 2013, probably because of, like, the chemical weapon attacks that happened or 2014 when ISIS was um, in its power. Um, but growing up there was very different. I, as I said, it was very peaceful. I grew up in this, like small house in like in in a really nice suburb where there was like a playground across from me there was a school next to me there was a church like a small library um it was very uh it was very just peaceful it was very normal like you know little shopping centers and actually before we left probably in the last year we were living there they they managed to build this really nice modern shopping center that was just like two minutes up the road from our house and so you know, it was, I thought, I thought it was modern, you know, the streets were, were nice and we didn't really have very good, you know, traffic rules or, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like I'm, it, it was, as I'm saying, I was only 12 or 13 at the time. So what I saw is very different to what the reality was probably. But to me, it was, it was fine, you know, like people, 
<laughs> you know, you you go up to your because we lived we lived in an apartment block and we were mm. like this on the second floor of that apartment building and we would always be talking to our neighbors and inviting them over for coffee. Like it was very, very social, very casual and and just yeah, very simple to be honest. Like it wasn't there wasn't there wasn't any issues. You wouldn't hear about bad stories or anything. People went to work, they came back, they they sent their kids to school. Like I went to a private school when I was there. And, um, you know, we took the bus to school and it was it was all good. And they had like these teachers on the bus and um, teachers at school that brought that they brought from like all these different places um, to teach us different things. And it was it was normal. It was, you know, like it was peaceful. It was it was fine. Yeah, Yeah. it was just, you know, like I'm not going to say it was like growing up here. Growing up here would be very different, but it wasn't it was definitely not like growing up in those images that you see on the news there was no destruction there was no fighting no killing no no none none of that yeah it was just like growing up in a small suburban place uh, with modern buildings and obviously not as modern as things are here but it was you know modern to an extent yeah was Aleppo a busy city yeah definitely so it's the most populous city um in Syria uh, and it was definitely busy. People were always walking or driving. Oh, I remember this because we lived in an apartment block. We didn't have a designated car spot, so we would have to park on the street. Um, and sometimes when we left, the, like when we went went out to like a family friend's or family's house, and we would come back late at night, the street would be like packed with cars, <laughs> and we would have to like do laps around. Um, the neighborhood to try and find a spot and like (laughs) and one time dad was trying to find a spot and like we found one and then the other car came at the same time and then before they like started fighting about it the other guy was like wait you're this this friend aren't you and dad was like are you my cousin's friend (laughs) and turns out that we actually knew who they were and they're like and then they started fighting about who's gonna take the car they're like no you take it no I'll go around no you take it like it was yeah it was a lot like that (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was a very busy city. Um, lots of people, lots of different, I mean, this is not just Aleppo, Syria in general, um, different ethnicities, different religions, um, all put in this one place, you know, like one of my best friends from school, um, is, so she was Muslim and then my piano teacher was Armenian and one of my teachers at school was Kurdish and we just had like all these different people. Um, in the in in one area and it was never an issue and I like just can't comprehend how things have changed now and how those things like different ethnicities and different religions are used to you know put people against each other yeah yeah it's really interesting that you bring that up because I I also like because I grew up in in Malaysia and although although obviously I understood what religion was and what race was and what mm. ethnicity was. Mm. It, it Maybe this was because I was a child, but mm. it didn't really sort of matter to me. Mm. It was just kind of like, this yeah. is the way things are. Yeah. Did you did you feel that way? I definitely did. I never really thought about it that, you know, I never thought about it. I never questioned it. I never, you know, like looked at someone differently because they were not Christian or because they were Kurdish or Armenian or anything like that. Like it was just very normal to, for me to have, different people around and it would it would have probably been weird for me as a child there to like just be surrounded by like the same you know the same people who are christian orthodox christian like me or things like that like i was always surrounded with with different people and it was never an issue for me or or my family like it's the same with my parents we had a lot of like muslim friends a lot of kurdish friends a lot of armenian friends and it was it was fun Mm. and i 
I remember that you just mentioned like a couple minutes earlier that you were a scout when you were yeah, growing up. Yeah, that was a really big thing back then. Um, especially now, it was for girls and boys. I'd say not just for girls. Um, so you would just when when you were ten, I would say you would your parent would take you to the to like a local scout group um, and sign you up, and then you would be put in like a group depending on your age bracket, and then. As the years went on, you would like move from one group to another, to another, to another, and it was very like it's very cool. It was the easiest way to make friends, I think, outside of school. Um, and they had organized; they always organized a bunch of really nice activities for us. And we went on like different camps as well. I think I went on three camps with the scouts group, uh, and yeah, they taught you a lot. And you had to keep like a a journal of some sort where you had to document like the different types of activities and like you had to make it creative and <laughs> sometimes they would like check the check everyone's journals to make sure like everyone was everything was documented and stuff it was it was very cool. as in you were documenting what you were doing yeah yeah okay. and like talking about the camps and the what you learned like what the moral of the story was actually fun fact um one time we watched um charlie and the chocolate factory mm. so they had organized for us to watch it and then they made up. They like signed us up to this competition where you had to write a summary of the movie and like the lesson at the end or like what you learned from the movie. And I got first place. Oh, <laughs> congratulations! <laughs> did you get anything? I think I did. I remember. I just remember them calling. Like they did like third, second, and first place. And I remember my name was called out, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, and I think like I had like a small award, but I can't really remember what it was. But um, but yeah, it was things like that during camp so there was like a girls group and a boys group and we would go on camps at the same time and often make activities with like the other groups um and then at the end of the camp we had to like put a dance together oh <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's one like that's where my love for dancing started no. um yeah so we had to like make like a group dance and perform it in front of everyone which was like so much fun and then on the last night of the camp they invited the parents um and the families of the people the scout girls and boys to come and attend the you know like the end of the camp slash group dance slash you know things like that it was it was very cool <laughs> was it a competition or was it just no I think every just every group had to do one but I think at the end they had like they they would give out awards to like the person who stood out the most during the entire camp like you know who took took on all these initiatives and was really friendly and helpful and stuff so right. you would get these awards yeah it's very cool so when you say camp yeah. I'm imagining pitching tents going hiking yeah by a lake is that what was um sort of so they were definitely tense but i think they were mostly used for the older age groups um the younger ones because i was in the youngest age group there i think they put us in rooms and we just had sleeping bags and we like slept on the on the floor in our sleeping bags um but it was in like a it was like in a country place with like lots of trees lots of I remember there was a lot of soil and it was like it was like red and dirty. So if you like stepped into the room with your shoes on, it would get really dirty quickly. Yeah, because you know you would stain it with the soil. Um, but yeah, it was yeah it was like in just like this like room. Usually it would be a place similar to like a like it would be run by the church because the scout group were run by a church. So they would like organize with other churches in like rural areas to lend us their like space basically for a week or three days or whatever it was um and yeah there was definitely a lot of hiking um, a lot of walking a lot of physical activities like they work us up every day at 6am to do ugh, sports um 
but not not a fan no not a fan still not a fan <laughs> i was never a fan um but yeah the most of the days were just spent doing group work so did almost every child at that age go to scouts or was I it think, just something i think it was a very popular thing for um for definitely people like christian people but again like Christians are a minority in Syria, so this is just like my experience. Yeah. Um. And I and I, you know, like I, I, it was a, po- it was popular within my kind of bubble, but I'm not really sure about what was outside of that. And that's like a really important point as well. Like I just speak about my experience, and it doesn't represent anyone else's. Yeah. 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 So you were obviously living in a city. So mm-hmm. when you went to the rural areas on mm-hmm. these camps, mm. what was it really different? Did you Um I mean like not really because I was living in a like in a city in a suburb. Like it was it was, you know, like there was everything that you would have in a normal suburb. But when we went to these rural areas, it was just it was very quiet because there wasn't as as many cars and things like that and I love that (laughs) um it was quiet and it was very peaceful and i think like the people who lived in those areas were just very simple people just like would make a cup of coffee in the morning sit outside their house and just like watch you know sit watch the you know because it would be beautiful views as well like very green and it would usually be up the top like at a hill so you can have a view of like the um rest of the like village kind of um in front of you and it was just very nice and I so they took us to Aleppo is a very suburban city but when they took us to like places like I went I did a camp in Arraqqa which is which was taken by ISIS in 2014 (laughs) um uh but yeah that was one of the camps that that is a more rural city I would say and it was it had like a lot of greenery and um just a lot of like friendly peaceful locals that didn't really have much going on (laughs) yeah it was kind of like that yeah, it's so interesting hearing you describe all of this because yeah. it just sounds like such a normal childhood. That's what I, yeah, that I, but to me, it honestly was like, that's what I, I think most people don't know. And I, I hope I'm like doing it justice by describing, I'm not very good at describing things, but, um, but yeah, it was definitely normal. And when you grew up, did you have a lot of understanding about the world outside of Syria? No. Definitely not, I don't think. And I don't think I was even interested in learning about the world outside. <laughs> it's kind of ironic because you're studying international Literally, relations I know, now. <laughs> I know. Um, I was very much in, growing up in a bubble um, and I didn't really understand what was going on or, or anything of that. And I even think like because I was still living there when the Arab Spring started in at the start of 2011. I think probably 2011 to halfway through 2012 when we moved here was the, the period of time where I... Like I started to understand that there were other things happening and gradually I formed an understanding that there are some problems building up and that things might not be so good from now on. Um, But before then, living blissfully in ignorance, you know, like I just, I had no idea. In that time between 2011 and Mm. 2012 when you moved, like how did it feel being in Syria? Yeah, so it was, it was... I would say the same around the start of 2011 because I would say maybe the first six months of 2011 when um, the war broke out in Tunisia and then in Libya, uh, people in Syria were very much convinced, at least the people that I knew and I spoke to, were very much convinced that it was not going to happen to us, that like the war, like the protests weren't going to break out here in Syria because um, 
they were just like, you know, like it, it, it just wouldn't. You don't want to believe these things because we were hearing really um, awful stories about people getting killed and kidnapped and things like that in Tunisia and Libya and Egypt and the countries around us. And I remember someone even saying, like, you know, if you look at what's going on to Libya, you should be really thankful that, you know, we're not experiencing it. And I like, I think I thought at that moment, I was like, but how do you know? <laughs> like, how do you know it's not going to happen to us? And I think that's when, like, it it started to dawn on me that that things might change for the worse. Um, and it was very stressful, I think. And I and I, I had, like, this one incident happened at school in 20... This was in 2012, probably, like, three months before we moved, um, that completely, like, changed my, my thinking. And I think that's when I realised that things are probably about to change. And and I stopped, I think, fighting my dad on, on suggesting that we should move countries because before then I was like, no, do you hear what everyone's saying? It's not going to happen here. We're living in peace. Everything's fine. Everything's safe. Um, so it was a Friday at school. Um, and usually Fridays were the days that were that things went down because you know end of the week people finish work early and usually would go to protest or would go and do things and it just wasn't good but anyways we were in school my sisters and I and um, it was a very it's a very long complicated story but what happened was there were two boys in my year level that that left school and went to this park and there was an there, there was an explosion near the park they were fine but they saw like they it was very close to them nothing happened to them but it was close to them and they saw and they saw people running and fire and smoke and they freaked out so they came back to school completely freaked out and really really scared and they told everyone what happened like they told my gear level what happened and in like 10 minutes it spread to the entire school and we obviously didn't have any systems in place for like emergencies or anything like that. So everyone panicked, including the principal. Like no one knew what to do because the school that I went to was like not in a rural area. It was more in a rural area than where I lived, but it was still like, it was just far away, but it was, um, there wasn't really much around it. Like it was like a 40 minute bus drive, I would say. Um, so, yeah, we were stuck in this school with these two boys crying, getting everyone scared. Everyone, everything just went to chaos. Like, it's, it's blurred in my head. I think I repressed it. But, <laughs> um, but it, it was just chaos. And um, everyone was panicking. And, like, I remember walking around my class and people were, like, sitting down in circles praying because they thought that because that park exploded, like, there was going to be, like, people started saying rumors that they're coming after our school. And people were like, I heard gunshots outside. Like, it was all all bullshit but you know how people just panic and go into that mode and yeah people saying they're going to come to our school they're targeting our cars there's someone shooting someone outside the school and like everyone believed it and everyone just like collapsed um this sounds crazy yeah yeah and it was all true think of like a school shooting scenario like when everyone just goes into panic mode and you don't know what to do and you're kind of stuck there waiting for someone else to come and help you um, so me being the little calm now, I, but I was, I was actually very calm. Surprisingly, I don't know why. I don't think I cried at all. And I think, I think I had to be my calm self because I had my two younger sisters there who were like, not good as well. Like they were really scared. So I had to like kind of take on the parent role and be really supportive and reassuring that everything was going to be fine. And I called my dad, told him what happened. And he said, I'm just going to send your uncle to pick you up and your cousins and your sisters. So just don't worry because the buses as well, that usually took us to and from school, like they, it wasn't safe to drive. 
So they had to like, so we like stayed off school basically. Yeah. And the teachers that drove their, that had their cars with them, as soon as they heard, they like drove off. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. So like the people who could get out early before they heard like that there was shootings or whatever, um, got out and they so didn't really. So all the teachers left? Not all the teachers. Oh, okay. Only some of them. Um, but yeah, like the ones who could, they did. They left like with, without students. No one really cared. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we just like stayed and we waited. And then we were eventually picked up by one of my dad's um, friends and we got home and it was fine. But oh my God, it was so scary. That's when I realized, I think like, yeah, things are not going to be good from now on. And I think even after that incident happened, I was a part of me still really, really wanted to stay. Because I don't really know anything other than living in Aleppo, you know, and growing up there. I don't know anyone else. And, and yeah, it was, just, it, it was just really hard moving because we were the first family out of our extended family to leave the country. And so a lot of people looked down on my dad for doing that as well, for taking us to not like Turkey or Lebanon, somewhere regional or even like America to Australia, like at the end of the world, <laughs> where we didn't really, where we knew some people, but to definitely didn't have any family, didn't have any jobs locked in or anything like that, didn't have a house, like nothing. Um, so yeah, a lot of people like looked down on my dad and they were like, are you sure you're making the right move? And oh, he, he, he was, he was, yeah, he, um, I mean, like imagine if he had, you know, listened to what, to those people and doubted himself and let us stay there, that would have been very bad. So yeah, he, um, he was very confident. He knew that he, he could see that things were not going to get better. And he said, if we don't move now, we're not going to be able to move later on. Yeah. And how did you break the news to your friends? <laughs> Very good question. Um, so at the, in my last few months of living there, I had, I was a part of like this, I had like a circle of friends and we would often hang out at, you know, each other's house, probably like twice a week and just like move from someone's house to someone else's house and stuff like that. And we would usually play um, Just Dance on Wii. <laughs> oh my God, so good. Um, and we would like watch movies and play games. It was so much fun. And we like took some photos as well. So at one of those, <laughs> at one of those events, I, um, we were at my friend's house and I like stood up in front of all of them, like put them together in a circle. And I was like, guys, uh, we're moving to Australia. And they were like, what? I was like, I know, right? No. Um, yeah, they were very surprised, very like, almost like, are you sure? Like, you sure you want to do that kind of kind of thing? Um, because they, they, them or their families hadn't even considered something like that because it was just really early on. And even though incidents were happening, they were kind of like on the exterior and they hadn't, like they hadn't been into our inner circle yet. Um, so people still had that sense of security. Um, so, yeah, my friends were very um, confused, I would say, about our decision. And so was I. So I couldn't really justify it to them as well. When you're doubting your own decision, you can't really make convince other people that it's the right thing to do. So you said that people looked down on your dad for mm. choosing to move. Like, why did they feel that way? Because they thought that it wasn't fair that he was taking himself and his family away from everyone else. And that it was not a smart move, but that it was going to be hard starting over again. And that was the truth. It was very hard. They thought that my dad was being um, naive because, you know, things weren't that bad yet. So, like, why not wait a few months? Because things, they, everyone was convinced that things were going to calm down. Everyone. Like, everyone used to say things like, oh, give it six months, things will settle. Give it 12 months. Christmas, by Christmas, things will be fine, you know. So that's why they were not happy with the decision, I think. But a year later, everyone was like, well, Fahim was right. <laughs> yeah, so. 
And did all of those people end up leaving? Not all of them. We still have family and friends there, but majority did move as well. Um, not to Australia, <laughs> sadly, but to different places, to Lebanon, to Canada, to America, <clears throat> to Europe, um, and lots of other places. So what did it feel like coming to Australia? God, uh, I think like, so growing up, I was watching like high school musical and the Simpsons and things like that. Very American. And I think that's what I had in mind as well. Um, I had like, I thought like the houses were just going to look like, you know, like my sister said this in an interview, but it's so true. Like the house is from the Simpsons. Like that's what I thought. Yeah. Like I, I remember, like, like I said before, we didn't have very good traffic rules or a legal system of, of any a good legal system of any sort but you know, as a child you're not really you're not really into that stuff so we never really wore seat belts but then when we moved here and we got picked up from the airport and I like I struggled putting my seatbelt on because I'd like you don't need a seat belt but the car was beeping so I literally like I had to put it on um, and that was the first thing and then like we walked into the room because we stayed with our family friend's house and um, like the light turned on automatically and I was like whoa what <laughs> so it was just like small things like that and then I went to school and oh my god that's a whole other story <laughs> um like starting school three weeks after arriving here not a good idea um I was still very very new and I did not know what was going on the first six months were just a blur of me trying to remember how to get to school and how to get to my class and did you still have to take the bus no no I well we lived somewhere very close to my school so I either got dropped off or I walked there because it was okay. very close but um but yeah it was just so weird it was so different and I didn't know anyone at my school everyone thought I was a weirdo and it was just yeah not fun times year eight I think then year nine I started to finally like develop a routine we did learn English in Syria as a third language but it was very minimal and it was very grammar based so not conversational English at all so like I couldn't really string a sentence together and I actually remember in my first six months I was walking home from school with this girl that I became friends with and it would like give me anxiety thinking about that walk because I would have to be talking like this fluently with her and it was just such a struggle like I couldn't do it it was really hard like I had to really think about what to say other than the actual language the accent was <laughs> like you just could not understand it I, I remember sitting in the principal's office when I first enrolled in school and he was talking to me and I was literally like can't understand a word of what you're saying yeah and how did your parents find it also very difficult um not in terms of trying to you know secure everything for us like a house and jobs for themselves that was not easy at all like you know the so it's it's not what you know too you know like my parents are both very skilled and both master graduates and you know they have all the requisite skills and requirements and still it was very and they speak english and it was still very difficult for them to secure employment in, in their fields. So they both had to find employment in other areas that they're not, you know, like that they know that they can do better than, mm. if you know what I mean, um, which I think is a very common occurrence with migrant parents. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. My mom works, like her job is to find jobs for newly arrived migrants and refugees and like it's insane the the amount of time it takes to find a skilled job yeah. but also just like that you get to that point where you feel so desperate that you just will do anything and yeah. so you end up working in a factory like packaging food I or something agree. like that yeah. and it's just like it's just 
so hard. Yeah. No, it, it's very, yeah, it's the same with us. I mean, like, you know, my dad struggled to find a job for the first five to six years when we moved here. And my, and my mom found a job, but it was not in, it was like in hospitality, which she's, she's an English teacher, you know, like she's, she's got IT and, and reception skills and, and administration skills. And it was, it all just didn't really matter. Like they, it's not that they like, it's not that they refused to acknowledge her, you know, certificates and stuff, but they didn't really value them because they weren't Australian and she obviously didn't have any work experience in Australia. So yeah, it was, it was very difficult. Yeah. Mm. So when did stuff start to like settle down? Oh, um, (laughs) probably uh, all of high school seems like a blur, but I would say probably year 10 for me. Um, I think by then I was like, I had made a few like solid friends around me and I could rely on them. And I, knew what I was doing at school I was doing well at school Um, I was picking up English and like trying to work and listen and read and you know work on my accent and things like that I think that's when I like finally started to get to feel more stable I think when I started uni I felt even more confident and and better about myself because my school was just very small and I had a small cohort and like it was just everyone from the region but whereas when you go to uni you meet people from everywhere and people who have had similar experiences to me like you so so um so it was yeah it was a lot better at university and I like I think yeah from 2017 onwards I felt a lot more comfortable and a lot better about everything and and I've come to terms with a lot of things that have happened over the years that I've probably suppressed but like I'm I'm you know coming to terms with them and trying to recognize like the effect that they had on me and why I am the way that I am and things like that yeah Hmm. could you give me an example of one of those things so like um well, the reason why I'm doing this degree, for example, like I, you know, always said I wanted to do humanitarian law, but like deep, deep down, I knew that I wanted to do it because I wanted to do something in relation to the situation in Syria, you know, and like coming to terms with that and trying to like, I'm, I'm trying to find an internship now, it, it, like that specifically works on Syria. And I think having to articulate to, to them in an email, like why I'm interested, it was the first time in my life where I'd actually had to put down like write down why I'm interested and why this has affected me and because I moved and because I saw this and I saw that and I saw my friends and you know like my family I left them all behind and I had to come here and start fresh like it was um it was definitely like this you know this no it is it it is the main reason that I picked this degree for have you ever felt like you've had to compromise parts of your identity as being Syrian to fit in one of the things that i've i found really hard is that when i speak to other malaysians now they don't consider me malaysian oh ouch i know even though i moved when i was 15 yeah so i was pretty old like yeah. still majority of my life until yeah. i'm 30 years old like majority of my life would yeah. have been in malaysia yeah, yeah, yeah. and so and like losing my accent was was hard but it was something that I had to do because I moved to a country town and I don't think people would have like I wouldn't have been accepted Mm. if I still spoke with a Malaysian accent so yeah well the thing is like (laughs) it's funny for the first few years I was like really keen on telling everyone that I'm Syrian and then when I was in like year 10 I was like I need to stop (laughs) like I was like because like it opens a door for so many questions and I feel like by that time I was good enough at English that people wouldn't really question it so I kind of like stopped telling people straight away unless they asked 
Um, but yeah, I think I just wanted that because it was easier and more convenient for me. Not necessarily because I was, you know, like embarrassed or ashamed or any of that. Yeah. So when that floodgate of questions would open, what was usually the type of questions that would come out? How is your English so good? Oh, <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> um, my God, your English is perfect. No, um, uh, so when did you move here? Oh, so you're a refugee? Um, what other questions did I get? Um, did you move here by yourself? Or are you with your family? Do you have any family here? Um, like the stupid questions stopped, thank God, because I think people slowly started to get more and more educated. Um, but yeah, it was questions like that that I would get. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find it hard being associated with refugees? Not hard, no. But um, I don't like it when people make assumptions. So I would rather that they ask how you came here instead of saying you're a refugee <laughs> or you're a migrant or you're this or you're that like not labeling but asking how so I can tell them the story and then they'll understand that there are so many different ways of coming here and just because I came from a war-torn country doesn't automatically mean that I'm you know yeah yeah do you think that like why is it that, that it's important for you to differentiate because Good question, because, and I, I think like some of me and my family kind of disagree on this, but for me, we did escape the war, but we like escaped at the start of it. So we, even though we, heard, like the school incident and things like that happened, like we would hear like bombings in the distance. These things don't compare to what people are going through now. And the people that came after us as actual refugees, they're the ones who are more vulnerable and who need more help and I really don't want to be out here claiming that I struggled and I did all this when there are other people who struggled more like I guess you can argue the other way as well like you can say like just because more people uh, just because other people struggle more than you doesn't mean that your struggles are are not relevant Mm -hmm. but to me it's just really important to focus on the people to focus on giving help to the people who need it the most yeah, which I, yeah, like I've just, I just consider myself very lucky, you know, to be, to have been able to come here earlier than everyone else and, and establish, you know, like and build a life for myself, where, whereas other people weren't able to do that. So, yeah, I think that's why it's important for me to draw that distinction. What do you wish people associated Syria with? <sighs> what it was before the war? <laughs> or and maybe be even open-minded to consider that it was something very different before the war. Um and I wish people didn't assume that I was that I'm not dumb but like but like disadvantaged because I'm from Syria like I don't know it's complicated like I am but don't look like don't treat me like I'm not on your standard like we both made it to law school (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, just things like that please don't tell me you've had someone ask whether you have gotten into law school just because you were (gasps) really Mm, and like someone else say that I no someone else assumed that I was a transfer because of because I'm you know because I'm Syrian and because I went to a public school as well so you're a transfer and I was like (laughs) so yeah that stuff really annoys me throughout my high school years I was very in the background And I wanted to be in the background. Like I was very just like studious, do the work, go home. Don't really, don't really like lose sight. Like I wanted to do well in school and that was it. Like I didn't do any extracurricular activities. I just like ticked the boxes and I like 
you know, like I had fun. Like I was, I'm not, I wasn't boring. I swear, <laughs> but um, but I was also very focused. And I think because I was very focused, nothing could distract me from doing well and like getting to uni and stuff. Um, whereas and and to be honest, like I didn't think I didn't think I even had it in me to do things like that. I didn't think anyone would care or would listen or would be interested. Like no one believed in me. I definitely didn't believe in myself. I'm still trying to find my own feet. I don't really know if anyone would even care to listen to what I have to say. Do you still feel like that? A little bit, but I try not to because I definitely think that people do care, especially after our fundraiser. Um, and I try and, you know, like confidence has always been an issue, but I am slowly getting better at, you know, like talking to people about this and opening up and just making sure, like telling myself that they do appreciate it and they do value my, my inputs. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a bit about this fundraiser. So it was probably a month ago now. We ran a Cook for Syria fundraiser. And it was, it's basically, so the idea for it was just, um, it, it, it started in the UK in 2017, where a bunch of people got together, they made Syrian food, and they, no, they donated the proceeds to UNICEF. Um, and there was one in Melbourne in 2017, but we didn't really know about it. Then there was nothing happened last year. So this year, my one of my sister's contacts told them that he's interested in running an event for it. Um, and my sister's got me and my parents on board and we all work together. Oh, it was so stressful, Kelly, um, <laughs> to bring this event together. Um, because, yeah, well, I mean, like event management is stressful just on its own. But this was like so extra stressful because you were like putting out your story on the line. And it's like if people just leave you on scene when you like invite it to them like when you send the invitation to them on facebook or whatever it's a bit you know <laughs> um but the actual event was really really great i mean we had 100 people attend which is amazing the food was really good everyone was really happy with like the food and the entertainment and it was just like a really nice atmosphere and i'm very glad that we did it and we're gonna have an even bigger and better one next year Oh my gosh, amazing. So what happened in this event? So basically we had a bunch of speakers and entertainers lined up and then a lot of food for everyone to eat. Did um, you guys make the food? No. So we got the food donated to us from um, Syrian like restaurants or like, Ara like Syrian slash Arabic restaurants. So they weren't all just exclusively Syrian. Um, so we got them to donate the food to us or to give it to us for a cheaper price. Um, and we had, you know, like I was the first person to speak about our story, which is like, like the first time speaking in front of a big audience about, <laughs> about my story, which is very exciting. Um, and then they had a girl, a recent uh, refugee a, um, girl from Syria who played the piano and sang. She was amazing um, in both English and Arabic. So that was really good. Wow. We had two poets um, do poetry on Syria in Arabic, which was also very, very nice. Um, and we had one last person who is a, I think he's a Somalian refugee, but he has lived in Syria for a while. So he talked about his experience and yeah, that was it. And I think we, we had like an, at 45 minutes of that night where people were just eating and socializing and networking. So yeah, that's how it went. And how did it feel getting that kind of fundraiser together and having it be such a huge success? Oh, so good. <laughs> After all the stress, it felt amazing because, there's nothing better, I think, than looking around and seeing that there is a community support and people do care. 
and people want to help and people are willing to help if you like you know explain it to them if you tell them about your personal story you know people that you know at uni like they'll actually be interested and their parents will be interested and there's just there's just nothing but it was a really really good feeling I finally know well I finally understand that people care and that people want to know if you if you open up and if you talk to them they will listen and I think that's something I didn't believe up until recently yeah yeah that's so nice <laughs> yeah so final question what does making a difference mean to you okay I know it seems like a very simple question but it's actually really tricky to come up with something that is non-generic for an answer uh, but I will try my best so uh, personally making a difference means doing something anything regardless of how big or small it is um, that helps change the world um, into a better place or helps uh, to make someone's day a little bit better um, it can be some doing something that you're passionate about that you know will generate really good results or it can be something as simple as I don't know helping someone carry their grocery bags or, or buying a Christmas gift for someone that might not be expecting any um, it can just be small scale things like that that really really make a difference I think that is very easy for us um, these days to just overlook or not give as much importance but in the grand scheme of things when we look back at those small moments where we did something really simple that uh, made someone else's day better or helped them with something um, I think they will be the moments that we will be most proud of because they will be the moments where we where we change something you know like I really believe that as individuals we have we do have the power to make a difference um even on a small scale like some change is better than no change and change always starts very small it always starts with one person thank you so much for listening to this week's good morning conversation with Jude Gasali and thanks, Jude, for taking the time out a day before flying out to Shanghai to record with me. I am so glad that I got to hear and share your story. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It helps get our stories of extraordinary, ordinary people out to even more people. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Catch our next episode where Jude and I talk about our oh yes and oh no moments of the week and answer Google's questions on why do Syrian dot dot dot. You'll have to wait to find out what crazy questions Google has got for us this time. You can also catch updates on our socials at Instagram on goodmorning.pod or our Facebook group Good Morning Podcast. We would love to hear about your oh yes or oh no moments of the week in the group or send us an email at goodmorningpod at gmail.com. See you next time.